Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Hi, Global Investors. Before we get started with today's episode, are you looking to finance your U.S. real estate investment as a foreign investor? Contact UniversalCommercialCapital.com. They do not require any credit history, employment, income verification, or permanent residency status. All you need to have is the minimum 35% down payment in a U.S. banking institution for two months. Rates start at 6% with a 30-year term. The whole approval process can be completed in 30 days. Call 888 334-9039 or email them at info at universalcommercialcapital.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today we have Jeff Greenberg. Since 2007, Jeff has been investing in value-add, multifamily, and student housing assets. He has been an investor in over $40 million worth of multifamily projects consisting of over 1,000 units. His company controls 317 student housing beds and 225 multifamily units in Georgia, Arizona, Texas, and Ohio. He focuses on all aspects of the commercial real estate projects with an emphasis on investor relationships and operations management. So thanks so much for being on the show, Jeff. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And um, are you able to give us a little background on yourself prior to starting your, uh, your current company? Uh, Prior to actually getting into real estate, I was in the IT business Mm -hmm. and um, it, you know, didn't look like I was going to uh, retire for a long time. So uh, I decided to get into real estate and see what real estate was all about. I had no idea. What, uh, what was your, how did you choose real estate as your investment vehicle out of all the different other kind of vehicles out there that one can take when trying to transition from a W-2? Well, I don't know. It was I was I was on a hike with a with a friend of mine, and he mentioned that he was getting into real estate, and I said, "Oh, okay, that sounds interesting." But the the only thing that I I knew really about real estate, or what I thought I knew, was people buy single family homes, rent them out, and that was how you invest in real estate. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about fix and flips and tax liens, tax deeds, multifamily. The, anything else uh, that I later learned that there was many, many different uh, facets uh, of real estate. What did you, how did you focus in on multifamily specifically? Well, I started out uh, in uh, probably about 2005, 2006, looking at REOs, looking at foreclosed properties, single family homes. And that wasn't a great time to be doing that mainly because the banks didn't know what the heck to do with all the foreclosures they were, they were getting. Right. And so that wasn't working. And then I, I heard a, a guru talk at some event where uh, I could get involved in much larger deals and not have to worry about how much money I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more about um, being a service to other investors and bringing their, their funds in. And I thought, oh, that was a lot more interesting because my, my funds were limited. Um, mm-hmm. I was in the middle of a divorce. And so that just be, became very interesting to me. 
And um, so you were working a full-time job, I imagine, uh, at the time you started in real estate. Um, how did you scale your business to the level it is it's, it's currently at by, um, you know, by having a, a full-time job as well? How did you manage that? Well, I did have a business partner that was doing it full-time, so she helped, she helped quite a bit. But a lot of the stuff I was looking at, um, most of it was in Texas, so um, being two hours different, I could get up earlier in the morning. I could get up early before work and get a bunch done, talk to a lot of brokers. Uh, I was able to talk to brokers uh, during lunch um, whenever I could uh, change my schedule around. I mean, I was... I had the flexibility of having lunch at any time I wanted. And so it worked out that way, but it was all in between getting my job done. Yeah. Every person I speak to that's really scaled their business, there's at least one other partner that they're working with. So it's, uh, it's very interesting that the people that keep it small, it's usually by themselves, but um, yeah. Oh, definitely. So our firm invests mostly in mainly multifamily properties. Now you work a lot with student housing. How do you, can you explain the difference when going from underwriting and due diligence on student, student housing versus on a multifamily property? Mm -hmm. um, the, the main difference as far as the underwriting aspects of it is, is typically we're looking for uh, higher turnover um, than you normally are going to get. Um, and, and, it, and it ranges in property. It depends on what options I have. I have one property that we're probably going to get very little turnover, you know, maybe about 10, 15% because there's not a lot of other options. I have another, prop, another property, one in Ohio, where there's a lot of options for them. They can go from house to house or apartment to apartment. There's plenty of options. And so we may get a 75, 80% turnover every year. Um, it, it depends. So there is a greater turnover. So because of the turnover, you have typically higher expenses. As we all know, turnover is one of your largest expenses uh, in, in the multifamily business. But that's the main thing on the underwriting, except for we also get a higher revenue because a lot of the properties were renting by the bed as opposed to by the unit. And so you can charge a lot more money when you're charging by an individual bed. But as far as the underwriting, that's the main part. There's a lot of other things, but mm -hmm. in underwriting a deal, that's, that's most. Also, I guess um, your, your property management's going to be a little higher as well. Yeah. I would imagine it's a lot more time intensive on their, on their part of it is, um, is it much more time intensive on your part as the asset manager? Not, not so much, but you, you hit a key point there is the time and resource intensity of, of the management company, which makes it that much more important that you get mm -hmm. the proper company. You have to get a management company that substantially does student housing, not just as a kind of a, okay, we'll do that for you. Um, because typically they have to have resources that are going to uh, do a lot of stuff online, uh, get into Facebook and Twitter and what are all these other things uh, online that the uh, younger people are, are getting into. So you need that. You also need um, access on campus. We have uh, people going to on-campus events and we have a table with a banner and, and uh, the other day we had a we rented a pizza truck 
And so uh, when they came over to talk to us, you know, they got free pizza. Um, so there's a lot of that. It's, it's not just the typical advertising that you're going to do for, for an apartment complex. So you do have to do that. The other thing is with the management, there is a lease up window and every campus, uh, every market is a little different, but if you don't get your property uh, leased up uh, for the following semester, um, within that window, there's a good chance that you're gonna have a lot more in the way of vacancies. Okay. So you, you don't wanna mess up and miss that window. So you need a management company that understands the dynamics of that particular market. Now, when you're doing your leases out, are they on 12 months, which normally it's going to be, they're only going to be in there probably 10 months during the year. Is that how it works or? Each, each one of my properties is a little bit different. Each okay. one of the markets is different. Um, I do have the 12 month leases where they have to be, if they're, if they're not renewing, they have to be out the second week of July. So we can, we have two weeks for new people to come in, but otherwise it's, it's a 12 month or at least the, uh, the uh, revenue is spread out over 12 months. And I have another property that's, that's 10 months um, that we don't worry about the two months. We, we make enough money um, over the 10 months to cover mm -hmm. us. So we're not worried about the vacancies on those two months. And then when we do get uh, summer uh, tenants for summer school or whatever, that's kind of a bonus. Yeah. that you know that we're you know we're excited about and that's great but um yeah it, it depends on the particular property i imagine too it depends on if they're furnished or unfurnished is that correct some of them are furnished and some yeah. of them are unfurnished um my my georgia property is 100 percent furnished we mm -hmm. don't i kind of like that because they're not dragging as much stuff yeah. across the floors and up and down the stairs and and ruining things because they're not taking much care, you know, for your property. Um, there are some that they would prefer my Ohio property. We do have a lot more in the way of unfurnished units. Okay. Yeah, it just depends, I guess, on the market specifically and what's going on in the area and what's going on around that university that you have to kind of mold into when you're doing over a property, I guess. Yeah, and we, and, and we do give them the options. So okay. in my, my Arizona property, we... Uh, we, we have a more of a low-end uh, property. I mean, the property's not low-end, but it's the area we're in mm -hmm. is a little bit farther away from campus. We're two miles from campus, which is, which is a little bit stretching it. And it usually appeals to those people that are on a lower budget. Mm -hmm. And so we give them the option of furnished, but most of, the, most of them are taking the unfurnished because they don't want to pay the extra. Right. Um, for, for the furnishing. So it, it you know, it, it does depend on that. When you're purchasing the property and say, are they already student housing units, let's say, are used for that? Or is it something that you're purchasing possibly a multifamily property that wasn't, the previous owner wasn't intending to keep it as student mm -hmm. housing and then you're coming in and that's your plan? All the, all the properties that we've gotten so far uh, have been, um, student housing properties once when we acquired them okay. but that doesn't mean that it wouldn't be that difficult to convert something um, the main thing i would tell people is just to make sure what the city rules are to make sure that they're going to be in compliance and uh, 
they're not breaking some uh, zoning code. Um, in Ohio, the Ohio property, uh, there is a uh, rule that only a maximum of four people, mm. unrelated people, can be living in a unit. Mm. And that doesn't matter if you have five or six beds, uh, they limit it at four. So if you have a five bedroom, you can use that bedroom as an extra room. Mm. And, and typically, um, all of our properties are single person in a bedroom. We don't really have any properties that have double occupancy in a bedroom itself, even though uh, the dorms do that. Dorms will put two beds in or a bunk bed or something. None of okay. our properties have done that. So with the value add, um, how does that, when you're going into buying one of these, what are the normal upgrades, changes you're making um, when purchasing a student housing property to add value to the property? What are some of the common, common uh, ideas and points that you make in that property? Well, there's not much difference um, in that in, uh, multifamily and the student housing on that. I mean, you're, you know, if you're doing it by the unit, you can make more money by renting it by the bed. That's an mm -hmm. option. But otherwise, I mean, it's raising rents. Uh, but typically, you don't deal with the uh, rubs. Uh, typically, students want one price. They don't want to worry about paying the utilities. Uh, even though my Arizona property, they do pay for their electric. Uh, they, you know, have to put their own name on it. And in my Ohio property, I do have some, some of the uh, units do pay electric and cable and gas and all that. But typically, they would prefer just, you know, to keep their budget straight by having, having one cost. Yeah. But, it's, it's not much different than your normal student or your normal multifamily. You can raise rents and reduce your expenses. Um, if you've got covered parking, you can charge, you know, for covered parking or reserve spaces, you know, the, the typical, mm. the typical yeah. multifamily thing. But one other thing I wanted to point out as far as another different um, aspects uh, of the, the student housing from multifamily is Typically, when you're looking at multifamily, you're looking at uh, uh, job growth, uh, jobs coming in, um, population growth, median income, you know, all of those things. Where the student housing, you're looking more at the university. How stable is the university? How uh, it's growing? What are they doing? What's their plans? You know, are they putting money into fixing it up? Also, what percentage of the student population can they house in their dorms? And how long do they require the students to stay within the dorms? Some schools, it's the first year. Some schools, it's two years. Some schools don't let the students off campus until they're 21. Mm -hmm. um, so those are things that you're going to look at as far as more related to the school and less related to the city. Because right. I have, I have student housing properties. I would never buy something in that city if it was just going to be rented to, uh, you know, regular, regular multifamily tenants. Um, the city itself really doesn't have all the qualifications, but because the school is doing well and the school has a, a good plan and good population, you know, we would buy in that city. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I've also, 
Um, I've heard before of some of the possible exits for someone that's owning student housing, uh, obviously if it's a larger complex, is there is always the possibility I've heard, and it happened to a building that I lived in in college, was that the university actually purchased it, um, the building from the private investment group um, as an easier way of, and they're brought it on as another dorm for, for, their, for their university. So have you ever heard anything like that or... That's certainly a, a possibility. Actually, yeah. my property in Georgia, uh, which has two buildings, the uh, the school wanted to master lease one of one of mm. the buildings. They wanted to take it over and master lease it, but the the terms and conditions that they were looking for was wasn't desirable, mm. and and we already had it one hundred percent occupied, so yeah, it, so. it wasn't going to do us any good. They yeah. wanted to lease it for one semester, and I thought, well, <laughs> well, what happens if you don't want it for the second semester? You know, or kind of yeah. left hanging. So that wasn't. The other thing is, is the alumni association for the school at one point was talking about buying the property when we told them we were looking at selling. Hmm. So uh, the alumni association was, but uh, they didn't want to pay the price that we wanted. Yeah. Okay. Now I hear when I speak to people with um, Airbnbs, which obviously is different um, business model, but they can't use that income traditionally toward refinancing property, toward the net operating income. With your student housing, it's normal since they're 12 months leases, it, you can use that income and you can use it with the bank and show them, hey, this is, this is exactly what we're getting for this the NOI, this is the bottom line, and this is what we're gonna refinance it for. Is that how it typically works very similar to regular multifamily? Yeah, there, there's a lot of, um... Uh, lenders that have no problem with student housing. We've had, we've had some lenders ask us how, you know, what percentage of undergrads do we have or what percentage of students do we have? So, so you know, some of them may not be as comfortable as others. You just have to find which ones are. Um, there was one lender, I don't remember what, what it was, but we were looking at a lender that they only wanted grad students. You know, okay. I mean, it's the same thing with like military, you know, the, when you're, you get mili housing near a military base, they want to know, you know, what percentage are military because they can be deployed. Yeah. Um, so there, there's some that are a little gun shy. And also they look at, you know, what's the population, what's the student population. They want to know that it's a large enough school to be able to uh, support. Yeah. Every uh, lender has their own having their own risk tolerance. So it's, um, you know, especially if they've lost on a property previously, they stay away from that. Whereas like you said, the military, which is one thing that a lot of people shy away from, especially if it's 15 or 20% of the, the area or of the, uh, the tenant, tenant base. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's many different things that lenders will pull back on and you just have to find the, the lender that's, you know, is willing to do the type of property that, that you have there and with the population. Now, mm -hmm. the interesting thing you mentioned Airbnb, um, because on, on uh, one of the properties, um, we had some, uh, a couple of vacancies, um, we have done Airbnb. So we've got Airbnb in our Tucson property and uh, that seems to be doing pretty well. But, you know, the, the lender, you know, doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Yeah, we have a, a part of a property in uh, Phoenix, and they have out of, I think, 100 units, 98 units, um, about 10% of them are Airbnb. And mm -hmm. um, it, it's definitely an, uh, 
complete different. I mean, it's like three or four times the gross that comes in on that unit on those units versus mm -hmm. the traditional 12 months. So it's very, uh, very profitable. Um, so during a syndication, what's your firm's role in the process? Are you guys finding the property normally? Are you performing a lot of the due diligence along with the asset management? Well, you've kind of caught me in the middle of a transition to what I'm doing right now. Uh, in the past, all of the uh, syndications that I've been involved with, um, I was pretty much uh, the lead partner and we essentially did everything. Um, from acquiring the property, asset management, um, you know, disposition of the property, you know, essentially the whole bit, including, you know, raising of funds. Uh, right now, uh, I've taken a little bit more of a pullback where I am looking for a very few highly qualified, successful syndication groups that I will come in and help out with some of the equity raise. And so I'm not doing as much personally as far as looking for deals. I'm looking to provide a service for my existing investors and to do the vetting and all the hard work of finding good quality deals through, through uh, syndicators that I've uh, become acquainted with. Yeah, I agree totally with that. That's how our group has been has been working over the last 12 months as well. Um, there's so many deals to be underwritten out there and there's so many overpriced deals that it's extremely time intensive to start reviewing all the deals. So there's certain deals that we will review in our backyard, us being in like South, South Florida, Central Florida. Um, but if it's outside of that area, it's something that we will kind of, once one of our partners brings it to us, we review and it's something that we will partner with them on if, it, uh, if we feel it's a good, good asset. So I definitely understand what you're saying, especially in this market. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, done, the, I've done the bit with uh, underwriting 100 deals and making an offer on 10 of them and maybe getting one of them. You know, that I've, I've been there and I've done that for the past 10 years. And uh, I mean, I've had team members that have done that. I mean, we went through 500 deals in two years one time. And, you know, so, and we got three deals out of it. So that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of work. And, you know, I don't need that right now with this market. Maybe when the market changes, we may change some things. But at this point, there's a lot of great people that I know. You know, I've got a great network of some highly qualified um, deal sponsors. I would much rather have them do the deals, find the deals, and I, I will review their deals and underwrite their deals. And if uh, they can use some, uh, some help in the equity end, you know, I'll jump in and partner with them. Uh, I'd much rather do that. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you're not even 500 deals in, you, in three properties you purchase. That's even less than what the gurus say out there. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a full-time job to underwrite all those properties and even find the properties, get them from the brokers, keep the broker relationships and all that. It's, it's definitely a very intensive process. So um, you were said about, you know, what, what's going on in the future and maybe you'll change what you're working on. Um, where do you see, I mean, where we are right now as we're filming this second week of March, uh, where do you see interest rates, cap rates, multifamily in general going in the next six, 12 months? Well, I don't, I don't see, interest rates any going, you know, 
anywhere, especially you know right now we're we're dealing with the the, the scare of the coronavirus. So I I don't see that moving very far. Um, you know everybody's sitting there thinking, okay, hey, are we on the verge of a recession? Um, you know I'm looking at deals you know through through partners um, that are very conservatively written that um, have a lot of room in case there is some correction. We, we know that at some point there will be one. We just don't know when. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, cap rates may go up a little bit, uh, you know, which may, you know, make it a little more advantageous to buy and, you know, cut back on your profits a little bit when you're selling. But, you know, I talk to a lot of people and I say just, you know, you, you underwrite conservatively, you make sure you have enough reserves, you get a long-term loan and uh, you know, that, uh, that way you can ride out most storms. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact, exact model that I use as well. It's the long-term debt and um, it's having reserves, which a lot of, a lot of new investors miss on. But um, speaking of new investors, you coach and mentor a lot of new investors. Are you able to give us a couple points that you feel are imperative for new and experienced investors to follow? Well, the, the main thing is, is with new investors is, uh, you know, as we know, this is a team sport. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much that you don't know um, and you end up dealing with a lot of extra zeros on, on the deals that you're doing. So uh, typically there's, there's a lot that can be lost uh, if you're not careful. Um, you know, either finding a formal mentor or even an informal mentor, uh, teaming up, teaming up with a very experienced person and finding a way to be of assistance to them. You know, um, I tell a lot of people that one of the things that I would have done differently than the way I started out, I teamed up with a very, very good person, very bright person, but she was at the same level that I was. She kind of started out you know, at the same time I did. And it would have been great to be alongside of somebody that had a lot more experience. I mean, we both did have mentors, you know, so we were able to go back to our mentors and ask them questions. But I think somebody teaming up with someone with more experience and getting into deals that way uh, is, is a great way to go. Uh, even with people with some experience, you know, getting on a team with um, somebody with more experience is, is a fantastic way to learn. And even if you don't get much financially out of the deal, that, that you know, that doesn't matter. It's, it's yeah. how much, you know, you're going to get a lot of um, exposure, a lot of experience uh, just from being side by side with some more experienced people. Yeah, the experience is a huge factor you get with mentoring or partnering with people that are that are more seasoned than you are for sure definitely mm -hmm. yeah. um so what common mistakes do you see new investors make other than you had one that you of maybe not a mistake but something that you said you would change what other mistakes do you see or that uh, people can avoid um under under uh, capitalizing mm -hmm. uh, getting into deals with insufficient reserves uh, i see a lot of underwriting that are pie in the sky, that are, are not very conservative. 
Uh, in fact, I have a lot of my students bring deals to me and said, hey, somebody wants me to come in and invest in this deal or JV with them on this deal. And I'll look over the numbers and say, you know, they're being way too aggressive on their, their underwriting. And that's, that's part of it is, is somebody, you work so hard to find a deal. You work so hard to get it under contract and you want those numbers to work. Mm -hmm. You want it so much that you can squeeze the numbers a little bit here and a little bit there. And if all the stars align, everything's going to be fantastic, but you can't get emotionally involved in it. You have to, um, you know, not, not get, you know, so tied up that you've spent so much time trying to get this deal and kind of squeeze the numbers. So it's always good to let somebody that has nothing, nothing to gain, look over those numbers and say, Hey, what do you think of this? Uh, because you're, you get too emotionally tied into it. Yeah, for sure. You get tunnel vision, especially after you've invested hours into a project and um, especially using how many deals you have to review to get one. It's definitely something where you can squeeze it. That's one of the first things I'll do when reviewing and my underwriters will look at stuff and we, we really, we look at the rent increases, number one, of what they're thinking they're going to get. And then you can kind of work back from there because sometimes, I mean, you're not going to be able to get these huge rent increases when there's a pullback. You might be able to get just uh, a fraction of it. So it's something where um, you just have to review exactly what's going on before getting involved. But um, uh, so yeah. how can how can our listeners learn uh, get in touch with you and learn more about you and your company, Jeff? Well, they can get a hold of me at my website, which is www.synergeticig.com, and that's spelled S Y N E R G E T. ICIG.com. They can get a hold of me at Jeff at synergeticig.com. Uh, I'm also, I respond to people on bigger pockets, even though I'm not on there quite as much as I, I used to be. But when I get messages from bigger pockets, I respond to those. So those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. So what I'll do is I'll put those links in both the podcast and YouTube notes. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun. Have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in investing in real estate and you don't know where to begin, set up a free 15-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.